We are in week two of a three-week series on Hebrews chapter 12. And so if you were not here last week or if you were not able to watch online, I do encourage you to go back and listen to last week or watch it on YouTube. But we are in week two of this series that we're walking through on enduring faith. Of how do we walk through this life? How do we navigate this world through endurance and perseverance? How can we actually do these very things? And last week, the main point was that there is always purpose in pain. There's always purpose in pain. There's always joy beyond it all. That no matter what we're going through, no matter what trials or difficulties, no matter what discipline we may be going through in the moment, God has a purpose for it. He has a purpose for it, and there's joy beyond it. We just celebrated and took Holy Communion together. That's what that moment was about. Jesus, recognizing pain, recognizing difficulty and trial, bowed before the Father, said, God, if this cup could pass for me, let it be, but not let, don't let my will happen. Let your will be done. And he still saw joy beyond the cross. He saw joy beyond the grave, and he was able, because of that, to scorn the shame of a cross, scorn the shame of death. And therefore, we too have purpose and pain. And he, he, he used the illustration of a father disciplining a child. And he says, no discipline is, is delightful. No, no discipline is pleasant. It's actually painful. Later on, however, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That we go through discipline for the very sake of something greater than ourselves. Maybe that God is producing something a little bit more than what we see around us. So last week was all about focusing on Jesus for us for a moment. To fix our eyes and our, our attentions and our attitudes and our hearts towards him. Today is more about what do we do, what responsibility do we have collectively and individually as we run this race. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's word this morning? God, may this time be a time of fruitfulness, of righteousness as we look into your word. God, may it produce not anything else but holiness. God, anything of ourselves, anything of me that is in the way, God, just remove it and cast it aside so we can focus on you and allow your word to speak mightily this morning. Your sons, let me pray. Amen. So it's a story, just start us off this morning. You probably have heard it before. If you ever saw the movie Pursuit of Happiness, this is, you've seen this before too, you've heard this story. There was once a man who was drowning, and a boat came by and tried to save him. But he said, no thank you, God will save me. Another boat tried, saw him drowning, he says, hey, we're here for you. He says, no, I'm good. No thank you, God will save me. Ultimately, the man drowned and he died. He steps forward into eternity as he walks into the presence of God. He says, God, why don't you not save me? God responds back, I sent two boats, you dummy. Like, like, why in the world am I starting off with that kind of corny joke? Because it actually communicates a point that I want to help clarify today, that sometimes we can be so focused on one thing, in our pursuit of one thing, that we actually forget and we misinterpret things around us. We sometimes get so focused, as we just sang earlier, the hymn of heaven. We long to see heaven. We long to see the glory of God. We long to be in his presence, all while failing to realize his presence is already here with us now. That we can experience and taste his goodness now. That we don't have to wait for eternity to sing his, his glory, his worthiness, his holiness, when we can do it right now. We can so misunderstand our salvation. We can believe that wait, one day... I'll be delivered. When I step into eternity, I'll be delivered. I'll be free from all this stuff. And we fail to recognize we've already been delivered if we are in Christ Jesus. 
You can live differently today. We long to see the kingdom of heaven, but we remember that Jesus said, I instruct you to pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just have to long for heaven one day. We can pray that it comes today and experience it now. We misinterpret the kingdom of God, the end times that we look at in Revelation, and we see, oh, a king is coming. Wrong. A king has already come. He's already ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God. And one day, yes, he will come back and fulfill all things. And his kingdom will be consummated under his lordship. But right now, he is building and establishing his kingdom. We can get so focused on so many different areas. We say we're focusing on Jesus. But while we're waiting for that day, when he calls us home or when he returns... While we wait here in the moment, we become complacent. We become complacent. Not with our mission. We become complacent with our mission and, excuse me, with our sin. Sadly, though, this is just the case all around. We become complacent with all the things that we've been given to us. We miss out on opportunities that are right here Force. What happens when we do this? When a church becomes complacent, becomes distracted, and pursues the wrong thing. Examples. We become a church who exists to please people. We become a church who exists to please people. I couldn't get past the introduction of a sermon if, I'm, if my entire goal is to please people. Right? I would say, good morning. You're like, yeah, it's not a good morning. Well, there's another person I haven't pleased today. If my entire goal in a sermon is to please you all, I couldn't get past that. If our entire goal as a church is to become a church whose worship belongs to preference and not the Lord. Yeah, I don't like those songs. I don't like the color of those chairs. I don't like the, I don't like, I hate those stinking communion cups that even Scott couldn't open during communion today. We become complacent. We spend a fortune going to massive amounts of debt that we experienced for decades in order to be a church that people want to come to instead of being a church that goes to people. We speak gently on the seriousness of sin because, you know, in the, in the modern day of perpetual offense, I don't want to offend anybody. From the outside, when we become like this, there's absolutely no difference between our church, the church, or a country club. It's the exact same thing. The church has become a cruise ship that its entire goal is to cater to the needs of the individual to make sure your satisfaction is guaranteed, to make sure you're happy, to make sure you have all the different things, instead of being a church that's more like a, a battleship armed with people with the word of God to fight against the enemy of God. And then we wonder, why are we losing constantly? Why is the church in America not gaining ground? But it's not just about the collective body of the church, it's also us as individuals. When we become complacent as individuals, what happens? The exact same thing. We become distracted and we pursue the wrong things. It's the exact same thing. We pursue the right opinion. We pursue the right ideology. We pursue the right doctrine. We pursue our satisfaction, instant gratification, our sin, our flesh, all while forsaking the responsibility of every single Christian. Like some of those are good things. Yeah, those are, some of those things are good. Spouses. What is more important in your marriage, to be right or to be loving? I heard someone say both. Patsy. 
How many arguments have you won in your marriage because you were right? How many arguments have you won with your friends because you were right? As a pastor, man, I can become so arrogant to believe that I have the right opinion on everything. I'm very opinionated if you never knew this about me. I, I love the chuckles. It's true. I think today, and some of you all agree, that sometimes the most dangerous thing you can ever ask somebody today is, what's your opinion? Yeah, nope, not going there. But listen, at the end of the day, my goal, I'm sure Tony's is the same way, is at the end of the day, our goal is to be pastoral, not always right. We may share things, we may say things that you may not like. Those are as based on our convictions, and we pray that our convictions are based in God's word. But at the end of the day, our goal is that we're trying to love you and lead you to holiness. But we're not going to do all these things while forsaking our mission and responsibility so quickly we can just elevate our eternal status. Like, well, I'm good for heaven. God's already secured me. He's already promised me a massive shack in heaven or massive mansion in heaven. Depends on what translation or song you sing. He's already promised that. So I'm just going to sit here and just wait. Not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything. You can say whatever you want to me. I can actually say whatever I want to say because I've already got heaven. So let me get my jabs out now at you. And once we elevate that position, we neglect our responsibility. Listen, the aim of the Christian life is not merely heavenly reward. The aim of your Christian life is not merely heavenly reward, but conformity to the will and purposes of God. So we're going to walk through today this idea that it's not just about our heavenly reward. It's also about conforming to the will and purposes of God. So we're going to spend time in chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. We read 12 and 13 last week, but we're going to back up a little bit and read some of it again. He starts off in verse 12. Therefore, in light of all that Jesus has done, in light of his joy that was before him and how he scorned the cross, he scorned the shame, scorned the grave, in light of that, how, in light of how he disciplines you as children, the fact that you are a child of God is more loving than anything ever. In light of all these things, what does he say? Get up. He says, strengthen your knees. Strengthen your arms and your weak knees. And get up. We talked about this last week, that we cannot run this race as we lie on the ground in shameful defeat. That the entire exhortation in verses 1 through 11 last week was all simply, let's run. Let's run. Don't walk. Let's run. He says here, in order to run, you have to get up. You have to strengthen your weak hands and your feeble knees. And then second, you also have to make straight paths for your feet. He says in verse 13, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. We meander through this entire life. We wander all around thinking, where, what path am I supposed to be on? Do all paths lead the same place? Do I, do I just kind of go over here? And we get so lost. And we realize, we forget to realize that the path that we're looking for has already been blazed right before us. That Jesus has already walked that path, and that path is straight, right towards the throne room of God. But how quickly do we lose sight of that? How many of you have ever been lost on a trail? Again, first service the same way. I guess I'm the only one who's ever been lost on a trail. How many of you have ever been lost in a big city and you can't use GPS? Okay, four of you. The rest of you are so much better than us, right? 
But seriously, you take your eyes off the trail for a moment. You take your eyes off that little garment or whatever you all use now, ways, for a moment. Chaos ensues, right? You have no idea where you are. No idea where you're going. And we're like, in the Christian life, we're like, I don't know what path to go. Do I, do I make my own path? Do I follow the Disney thing and say, follow your heart? No, you follow Jesus who's already prepared the path for you. And it's a straight path for us. But listen, there's a responsibility upon all of us that's of the utmost importance. And so often as Christians, we fail to do these very things. He goes on verse 14. Listen to this. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Therefore, two things. Two things I need you all to do. Two things I, I, I implore you to do. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and holiness. Peace and holiness. When we discuss the idea of peace, if you Google it, it'll probably say the absence of conflict. That's really cute for a fortune cookie, right? The absence of conflict. Let's change this up a little bit differently from a biblical perspective. Let's go a little bit bigger. Peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but an awareness and acknowledgement to the presence of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. It's acknowledging and being aware that Jesus is always present with his people. His Holy Spirit's moving and directing and empowering his people. But notice I don't say only in the pain. Notice I don't say in only the good moments. It's being actively aware and acknowledging he's present in every aspect of your life, your marriage, your parenting, your education, your career. He's everywhere. And when the writer says here, peace with everyone, who does he mean? Because just like 2,000 years ago when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, when he says, hey, which one of these people was the good neighbor? What do people say? Well, who is my neighbor? In the same manner, we do the exact same thing today. So let me, let me walk through what this actually means here. I'll give you a clue into what the original language means when it says everyone. You ready? It translates everyone. Disappointed? It means everyone. We want this word to be defined differently for us because we want to put conditions and restrictions on our love, on our peace, on our grace, on our compassion. I'll strive for peace with most people. I'll strive for peace with those who agree with me. I'll strive for peace with the ones who are like me and think like me. He says, no, I want you to make every effort to live in peace, strive for peace with everyone. Peace is the outflowing of the characteristic this writer's mentioning here next. Which one is it? Be holy. Peace and holiness are so intertwined together. To, to separate those who would be doing disservice to God's word, but also the work of Jesus. Because we can only live peaceful lives, peaceable lives, if we are striving for holiness. Remove holiness, we will never be peaceful. We're at peace with one another. But what is holiness then? Holiness is the continual consecration of our lives as we seek the conformity to the image of God and the character of God. It's a continual 
Consecration means the continual setting ourselves apart from this world, from our sin, from ourselves, as we long to be conformed to the image of Jesus and his character. And this ideal, this idea of holiness should be the highest priority of the life of every Christian. Not just the few, not just the one, but every single person. We pursue holiness. J.I. Packer said it this way, In reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. Our holiness was the goal of our redemption. Kevin DeYoung states it this way, The Bible could not be any clearer. The reason for your entire salvation, the design behind your deliverance, the purpose for which God chose you in the first place, is holiness. He chose us. He redeemed us so that we could be set apart as holy. So one day he can present us as his bride to the Father and say, Look, here is my holy and perfect and blameless bride. Listen, you were not saved from something. Yes, we were saved from eternity and hell, but it's so much bigger than that. Don't isolate it down just to that. You were also saved for something, for a purpose, to be made whole, to be holy. But what does this actually look like? In Scripture, the word holy appears 600 times. 600 times. If you want to add the the derivatives of this word, of holiness, sanctify, and sanctification, make it 700 pretty important topic in God's word. Primarily, if you go to the book of Leviticus, the entire book of Leviticus is what does it mean to be set apart? What does it, be, what does it mean to be holy? And some of you are like, no, I do the Bible reading plan every year. I start in Genesis, but once I hit Leviticus with the weird things with animals, I'm done. The whole book is actually about worship. How do I worship God in his glory and his holiness? How do I consecrate myself so I can worship him freely and live a life of holiness now? But he says there in that book, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. We see it again in 1 Peter. Be holy for I am holy. We have sang so many songs this morning about the holiness of God. Hopefully you have not missed that meaning this morning. That God is holy. Yes, we say amen to that, but he's also calling us to be holy as well. Most of us quickly say, well, that's not possible. That's not possible. I cannot be holy like God in this life. I'm not challenging us to consider holiness in that manner. Holiness is never something you inherit perfectly in a moment. It is something that's progressively produced over a lifespan. As you grow in maturity, as you grow in your obedience, as you transform into his image, Listen, we live today now in the reality of the now and the not yet. Right now, if those of you who are in Christ Jesus, you have been justified, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And right now, if you were to die today, you would be presented before Christ as holy and righteous and justified. But in this life now that we live in, no, we're not there yet. But we're one step closer to holiness as he's maneuvering things in our lives, as he's disciplining us to produce that very holiness. To the point where when we, when we end this life, hopefully we can look back and say, well, I'm, I'm more mature than I was 20 years ago. Hopefully. I ask that to teenagers all the time. Are you more mature than you were five years ago? And they're like, uh, man, parents, I hope so. But now the not yet, we are justified. We are being sanctified. 
But if we're not careful, we can quickly assume that holiness is only the work of God. And we neglect our own responsibility for the work of holiness. And even quickly today, we'll hear pastors and talking heads proclaim, live in victory. Just live in victory. But I'll be honest, church, that is not enough. That is not enough just to live in victory. As good as it sounds, as refreshing as it is, it's simply not enough. The Christian life is one that's called to live in obedience that produces holiness. Don't live necessarily just in victory. Live in obedience. Live in obedience that produces holiness. Two quotes I want to read to you. And I'll, on the one sheet later today that will be posted later today, I'm going to include the resources I've read over the last couple of weeks preparing for today's message. One, I've already referenced him once, was Kevin Young's Hole in Our Holiness. Absolute fantastic book you can read in about five hours. The second one I read about five years ago, Changed My Life and How I Operate and Live as a Christian, by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. And he runs with this idea of living in obedience when he says this. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sin grieves God's heart. We are more concerned about our own victory. I did it. I didn't look at porn today. Yes! And we fail to acknowledge the simple fact that that very sin is destroying the heart of God and grieving him. I, I, I made it. I didn't tell a racist joke today. Good for me. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about your victory. It's about our obedience. He goes on to say, and I love this quote, and it's a little lengthy, so stick with me. Too often, we say that we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I'm defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility, and I'm saying that something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I'm disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the very reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We need to brace ourselves up and to realize that we are responsible for thoughts, actions, attitudes. We need to reckon on the fact that we died to sin's reign, that it no longer has any dominion over us, that God has united with us, with the risen Christ, in all of his power, and has given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. we got to stop blaming sin and start accepting the responsibility and recognize it was our disobedience. Our disobedience led to our defeat. It was not the other way around. But let me be clear when I say this. This is not a call for us to become legalistic. This is not a call to have a moral checklist. Okay, I did it. I didn't do it. I did it. I stopped cussing. I, I'm, I'm good. I'm better. I didn't drink five bottles. I only drank two bottles. I'm better. It's not what I'm talking about. The purpose of the gospel is not to make you good. The purpose of salvation is not to make you better. The purpose of salvation is to make you holy. Anything else would not be the gospel. Moralism, listen, moralism is not Christianity. Does Christianity produce good morals? Absolutely. 
hopefully we can all agree that when we study the Ten Commandments, we're like, those are pretty good morals. We understand that. But it's so much bigger than that. Once we accept Christ, and we start revealing or understanding that God is working in us, we do produce better and good works. But they are not the source of our salvation. They are a product of it. But how do we do this practically? The practicality of the obedience in pursuit of peace and holiness is found in the next couple of chapters. Chapter, excuse me, next couple of verses. Verses 15. The first one. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. So the first call of obedience is simply that no one, Greek translation, no one, just like everyone, falls short. Yes, we should be concerned as an individual for the sake of our own eternity, our own salvation. We work towards that salvation. We work out of that salvation. But it's not just about us. It's not just about us. It's also seeing that no one else will fall short of the grace of God. What does that even mean to fall short of the grace of God? It means rejecting the forgiveness and the grace, the mercy and the love that's been made available to us. In our modern world, this can be very difficult for us to rationalize or understand. Why? Because this world, especially our Western American world, says prioritize yourself. Prioritize yourself. You do you. Right? If we look at the modern church in America, the reason we lose drastically is because that should be the mission statement of our church. You do you. Prioritize yourself. That's your truth. That's not my truth. While, yes, we pursue Jesus individually and wholeheartedly, we have a moral and spiritual obligation, compelled by the love of Christ, to call others to the exact same progressive salvation and sanctification that's been made available to us. But hear me carefully. You are not the standard bearer for holiness. Jesus is. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how right you think you are. I don't care how strong about your opinions you are. You are not the standard bearer of holiness. Jesus is. I'm not. Jesus is. If our evangelism, if your evangelism leads people to look more like you or more like me, that's not evangelism. That's a cult. We have failed in our evangelism because the goal of evangelism is to call people to progressive sanctification and to holiness where we, everybody, every single person is being conformed to the image of God. And for so long, the American church has misunderstood that. Look at my moral checklist. Be like me. Look at my voting record. Be like me. Look at my actions, my mission, and my giving. Be like me. That's modern day colonialism. I'm going to force you to look like me, think like me, act like me, speak like me, sound like me. Where's Jesus in that? Where is Jesus in any of that? And for this very reason, there are so many people in this world who have rejected the gospel because of us. 
There's an entire generation. Listen, parents, growing up right now, who, yes, they may be here now, but they are leaving once once they turn 18. The largest growing movement in in our country today is called the non-affiliated, the nuns, the ones who every time the census comes out, they say, what religion? Non-affiliated. You know why that is? They've had it up to here with the church and their legalism and their lack of authenticity and genuineness. One, one commentary I read says this, there are many people in our world who cannot believe in the grace of God because they see only harsh and hate-filled deeds about them. The flowering of grace into the forgiving spirit of men and women may be the most compelling evidence that God is gracious. Hard legalism shuts the gates of mercy. And that destroyed me. Yes, we're calling people to holiness, but we can become very legalistic in that. This is what you have to do to measure up. And we become people who have zero grace, zero mercy, zero compassion. We just tell the entire world, hey, we hate you. We don't like you. We don't like how you sin. We don't talk about our sin. We don't like your sin. The commentary goes on and says, humility and kindness are twins. To know in ourselves the depth of God's forgiveness is to be prepared to be kind and gracious to those about us. The very reason why we've been given love in this world is that he's, we're compelled by the love to extend that love. The very reason we've been given mercy and forgiveness is that we would extend it, not just hold it to ourselves. The next outworking of walking in this pursuit of holiness. And that no bitter root, that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. To communicate this story or this verse a little differently, here's a story for you. The wedding guests have gathered in great anticipation. The ceremony to be performed today has been long awaited. The orchestra begins to play the anthem and the choir arises to sing their song. The bridegroom and his attendants gather in front of, the, in front of the, the, the room, and one little saint, her flowered hat bobbing, leans to her companions and whispers, isn't he handsome? The response is an agreement, yes, he is very handsome. One by one, the bridesmaids, heralds of the nuptials, begin to stride in measured patterns. Several flower girls sew rose petals upon the white, unmarked aisle cloth. The sound of the organ rises to a joyous announcement. The bride is coming. Everyone stands and strains to get a proper glimpse of the beauty. Then a horrible gasp explodes from the congregation. For this bride is like no other. In she stumbles. Something terrible has happened. One leg is twisted. She limps profoundly. The wedding garment is tattered and muddy. Great rips and tears in the dress leave her scarcely modest. Black bruises can be seen Welting her arms, the bride's nose is bloody, her eye is swollen, yellow and purple in its discoloration. Patches of her hair look as though it's been ripped out of her skull. Fumbling over the keys, the organist begins again after this shocked pause. The attendants cast down their eyes not to get a glimpse of her. The congregation mourns silently. Surely this bridegroom deserved better than this. For that handsome prince who has kept himself faithful to his love should find consummation with the most beautiful of all women, not this. His bride, the church, has been fighting again. Absolutely terrible imagery, 
that illustrates a very difficult point. The quickest way for a church to fail, a quickest way for a church to fall, and the Christian as, as well, is for this bitterness to take root. For sin to take root and defile her. He's alluding to a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 29 that says, Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord to go worship the gods of the nations. Make sure there's no root among you that produces such a bitter person. He says, make sure that no one, no man, woman, tribe, or clan is leaving us to go worship another god because a bitter root has taken root within us. Remember, he's speaking to an audience who is considering apostasy, rejecting the gospel and going back to their old way of life. He says, don't let that happen. Don't let that take root. Don't let that poison and that sin ruin and defile the bride. But listen, sin is not just an individual matter. You say, my sin is my own business. False. We are the body of Christ. When one part suffers, the entire body suffers. When one struggles, we all struggle. We are so intermingled by the the body of Christ, the lives that we have, the love that we have, that when you hurt, listen, we hurt with you. At least we're supposed to. That's why we gather together. That's why we gather in fellowship. We don't just come here to sing songs, to hear positive messages, but to call one another to growth, maturity, and holiness. That's why we do everything that we do. That's why this church offers care groups so that you can grow in maturity, call one another to growth and maturity, to grow towards holiness and pursue it together. If you do not do that in your care group, it's just a barbecue with positive vibes, okay? We are to be people who are pursuing and calling one another to holiness. And you know, it's easy to understand that there is so much sin and division in the world and it's wreaking havoc on churches. Would you agree? Democrats have not divided your church. Republicans have not divided your church. Masks are not dividing your church. Vaccines are not dividing your church. You know what divides church? Disobedient Christians. Disobedient Christians. That's not me making a statement about any one of those things. That is me making a statement about the lack of holiness that we call people towards. We hate the sin in every single one else. But rarely do we ever come to a place where we hate our own. Jerry Bridges, who I referenced earlier, said we need to cultivate in our hearts the same hatred of sin that God has. Hatred of sin as sin. Not just as something disquieting or defeating to ourselves, but as displeasing to God lies at the roots of all true holiness. We need to come to a point where we grieve and we mourn our sin. The Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are those who mourn their condition, who mourn their sinfulness in pursuit and hunger for righteousness. Again, I'm not saying hate everybody else's sin. Hate your own. Hold it before the throne room of God who's holy and mighty and pure and see how desperately we fall short and mourn that but be thankful for the righteousness that's been made available to us and pursue it. Verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau 
for, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. You know the story back in Genesis, we have Jacob and Esau. Esau was the youngest of two twins. He was the oldest child, and therefore he had the right as the firstborn to receive the largest portion of the inheritance. But in a moment of weakness, in a moment where he was famished, when all he wanted was food, his brother, let's not focus on Jacob for a second, but his brother offered him a bowl of soup, and he was willing just to fill his stomach so mightily, he was willing to give away the largest portion of his inheritance. He gave it all away for a bowl of soup, something so valueless, something so petty, inferior. It's confusing whenever we read this text because it says, do not be sexually immoral, godless like Esau. There's no scriptural reference that says that he was sexually immoral. Don't focus on that for a second. It's actually painting the imagery of idolatry. It's actually painting the image of immorality as a whole. That Esau, in that moment of weakness, he became godless. He became disobedient. He deified himself. He deified his own desires. He threw it all away. He had misplaced values that led to his decision to give up this inheritance. For something so valueless as a meal, simply a means of gaining immediate gratification, he foolishly gave up his right, the firstborn. What happened after for Esau? Look at verse 17. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessings with tears, he could not change what he had done. He knew what he had done was destroying his life. He comes back to the father and says, Father, may you, ha- may you give me this inheritance, but the inheritance was already gone. He says, you rejected me. You rejected what I have to offer, so herefore I then reject you. What does the story of Esau have to do with anything with us? How quickly are we to forfeit and just throw all of our eternity and our eternal inheritance aside for something so valueless? Well, I, I, I want to get rid of all these things. I, I'm willing to throw away heaven just to be right, just to have more. We live our lives without discipline. We prioritize our flesh. We prioritize our desires for something that means nothing. And it grieves the very heart of God. But the two examples he uses here, sexual morality and idolatry. Sexual morality translates porneia, to which we get the word pornography. Porneia is any sexual act outside of the divine goodness and design of God. The covenantal relationship between a man and a woman was God's set aside, sanctified act to produce a world of people who image, bear the image of God. To be beautiful relationship between Jesus and his bride, anything outside of that, he says is sexually immoral. We're like, wow, you said that. Yes, I did. Homosexuality. Pornography, lusting after another man, lusting after another woman, walking out of your marriage, sleeping around before marriage, the things you do in secret, all those things. It's like, wow, Scott, that's pretty harsh. But I believe it to be true according to God's word, and I'm saying this out of love. Because what quickly happens when we do those very things, 
we have now made a God of our flesh. We have made lust the God we worship. We've made the wife or the woman or the man, the husband, the very God we worship. We bow down and we worship them as long as they satisfy our desires that we have been taken captive by. That's idolatry. Immorality leads to idolatry. To live in the present with no regard to the future. To deify one's desires, to live for their satisfaction, to believe only in the immediate and the tangible, to regard the world as a collection of things rather than as a veritable sacrament of the sure mercies of God is to be profane and irreligious. Anything that we idolize, we are being profane and irreligious. Do not throw away the eternity for the temporary. Listen, do not throw away eternity for the temporary. Do not throw the eternity away just for the sake of being right. Do not throw your, your eternity away just so you can get a better buzz or a better hit from your drugs. Do not throw it all away just to find satisfaction with another woman or another man. Do not throw away all these things just to fill your stomach to the point where you are now having so many health issues. Do not throw away all these things just to share a prayer request. It's not my story, but it's just a prayer request. It's still gossip. Do not throw away all these things Do not cast aside the pursuit of holiness for the pursuit of your pleasure. Pleasure is not your God. Jesus is. So for us today, we must come today, this moment, to a very intense moment of self-evaluation and examination. And consider for a moment, hey, where are we falling short? Where are we failing to obtain the grace of God? Where are we having root or bitterness take root in our lives? Where are we causing more division and not peace? We fall down on our face before the throne of God because, listen, one day we will join that anthem. One day we will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But listen to me, church. I want us all to be there singing that song. I don't want us to come to a point where we've missed the opportunity to repent and therefore we are spending eternity in hell recognizing that he is holy and we are not. I want us to be gathered around the throne room of God worshiping together. And the people who are not here, I want the same thing for them. We need to start repenting daily. It's not just a one time I ask God for forgiveness so the rest of my life is golden. No, it's a daily choice to repent of your sins. Jerry Bridges says this, and this is crushing. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because a Christian life is one that is called to live in obedience that produces holiness. And the aim of the Christian life is not merely to have heavenly gain. It's not just heavenly gain, but conforming to the will and purposes of God. So today I just pray. I pray that as we talk about seriousness issues of disobedience, as we talk about the serious issue of obedience and holiness, just stop for a moment. Don't think about everything else. Just stop and think for a moment. Where is it that you're falling short? Where is your need of repentance? I know where mine is. 
I know where my repentance needs to come in the forms of my arrogance, in the form of my pride, and my stubbornness. Where's yours? The, the, the altar is open. I'll be here. There's, there's deacons all around the room. We would love to pray with you. You may not want to pray with me, and that's fine. Sit with the person next to you and pray together. Pray for your holiness, but also pray for theirs. And call one another to growth and maturity, because that's the life that God has called us to. Would you pray with me?